Welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. I am Brandon Odo, back with Brian Bowling as always. Uh, we got another good one for you today with a great guest. Um, we're continuing our theme of trying not to hyper-focus on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the theory being that although this is currently occupying a, a large part of our time, if we think about nothing else, it's going to drive us insane. So trying to focus on some good uh, basic critical care topics. Uh, Brian, you want to take us away? Yeah, so fair warning, we are going to touch a little bit on COVID-19 in this just towards the end, but really more in terms of kind of how we're changing practice related to this, and I think it'll have application even far beyond the end of the pandemic. Uh, So joining us today is Dr. Jessica McFarlane. Dr. McFarlane is a stroke neurologist, a neurocritical care physician, and a hospice palliative care physician. Uh, at the University of Kentucky. Is that all? Did I get all that right, Jess? That's everything. Uh, so she brings a pretty unique perspective uh, to us here in terms of neurology and critical care, but also palliative care. So we're going to walk through a little bit of a case um, and explore a couple of topics related to those things. So Jess, you are, um, you're on call at the hospital and you get a call from the ED that they would like you to come see a gentleman. So they tell you a little bit about him. He's a 75-year-old guy um, who was brought in by ambulance. Uh, He was found this morning by his family, unresponsive in bed. Uh, He was brought in, worked up for a stroke, and he has a head CT that shows a large intracerebral hemorrhage. So what do you want to know, and how do you go from here? So I think my initial goal is always to focus on both what what are the needs of the patient? What does he need for us to be as successful as we can for treating him? Um, and being as aggressive as we can at my first initial evaluation as I understand more about his illness. But I think about all of those things in light also of his goals and value. So for someone with an ICH, the first thing that I immediately want to know is where is the bleed? How large is it? What's his ICH score? What's his physical exam like? I'm going to look at the imaging. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing guideline-driven care for ICH the entire time. But I'm also going to find out where's his family? When's his family going to be there? Because I need to talk to them every step of the way about what to expect. Sure. So his wife is at bedside. His kids are on the way. Um, He is right now a GCS of 3T. Um, He was intubated in the field. He, uh, you look at his CT scan, he has a fairly large, approximately 50 to 60 millimeter uh, in volume uh, hemorrhage in the right sort of frontal parietal lobe. Um, with some extension into the right lateral ventricle. In terms of health history, um, pretty standard hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Um, He does have a history of AFib for which he takes warfarin. He was reversed on arrival to the the ED. Um, And that's about all you know about him. Gotcha. So his ICH score, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not calculating it all here, but I think that gives us what an ICH score of four. Is that a four or a three? It's a four, yeah. Now, Jess, are you using the score for your own purposes, or is this for communicating about prognosis, or in, like, in what way is it affecting your decisions early here? So I think early on, it just gives me a bit of a framework. It doesn't necessarily drive my decision-making at this point, but it helps me think through it's kind of the language that we speak, I suppose. So I'm trying to speak that language. I'm thinking a little bit about what does this mean for his prognosis? 
And there's lots of ways to get an ICH of, of four, right? An ICH score of four. So I'm thinking about that score, but I'm going, is it a four because his Glasgow's coma score is terrible? Is it a four because of the size of the bleed? Like, what are all of those components that are going to make up my initial thought about how this gentleman is going to do? So it's just one part of many. I would say most of my care isn't driven by that. But if uh, it suggests a mortality of 100%, say, that might you know, dictate a different approach than if it were much lower. Exactly. Like if his IC score two, the conversation that I would have, maybe not the first conversation, but, but probably the first conversation, if I'm being honest, is going to be different if we're, if we're talking about a under 26% mortality like we would with a one or a two score versus a over 80% mortality like we're looking at with a, with a, with a four. Okay. So you, you go down to see him um, and your exam is sort of what you would expect. Um, his wife is at the bedside, says um, he was acting normal-ish last night. Uh, he gets confused intermittently. Uh, he has an appointment to see neurology next week um, to talk about maybe some dementia, some early onset dementia. Um, but otherwise normal, they watched some TV, went to bed. Uh, he couldn't, she could not wake him up this morning. And Brian, I know you said his GCS is low. It's a three T, but what is, what are his cranial nerves? Like, I want to make sure, right. That this gentleman's not brain dead. Sure. So, um, he does have reasonably intact cranial nerves. His pupils are, um, unequal obviously. Um, but he does have a cough and a gag and he is, and still initiating breaths on the ventilator, not sufficient that he could do pressure support, but he is still initiating breaths. What was his iron? You said his INR was reversed successfully. Yes. Yeah. So an INR on arrival was two and a half, uh, and he was reversed down to uh, one and 1.4. The other thing I think I'm going to do for this gentleman right off the bat is I'm going to think about an EVD in him. I know his score is really high. He's got some blood in the ventricles. I think it's worth a discussion immediately to think about whether or not doing an EBD, um, helping decrease some of that content of blood, given his GCS is so low, might make a difference in what was a pretty functional 75-year-old just yesterday. So I think it's it's worth considering that in the in the short in the you know these first. 48 hours, being really, really aggressive, assuming that that, that that would have been consistent with his goal. Okay. So while you're waiting for neurosurgery to come, uh, his kids show up. His son pulls you aside and says, um, I, I don't know how much my mom has told you, um, but my dad has been really declining lately. Um, we've been talking about possibly putting him in some sort of assisted living. Um, he just doesn't quite, he's not able to care for himself like he used to. And Brad, remind me, he's intubated, correct? He is. Three teeth. Okay. So does that affect your, your thought process? Yeah, I think this is what we do. So I'm going to assume he's stable right now, and I've got a little bit of time to talk to the family. Is that correct? Yes. yes. So I think from my perspective, that's having these conversations early on is important. This is a good time to stop and really talk about who this patient is as a person, what his what is exactly like what you mentioned what has his life been like what does his family know about his goals and values what constitutes a really good quality of life 
for them what level of aggressiveness are they willing to go through in order to have a chance at survival versus have a chance at survival with significant debility. So you start talking with the family and the, the son says, you know, I had this talk with my dad last year. My, my, my father-in-law passed away. Uh, my wife and I have been talking about this and how, how much we saw him struggle. And my dad and I sort of talked about things and he said he didn't want to, he didn't want to be kept alive on machines. Um, and, and notice he's on a ventilator now is, are we keeping him alive artificially on machines? Yeah, we are. So I think this is where we really have to talk about, there's two kind of parts what we have to do. We have to break bad news and then we have to sort of map the future. My job would be to, to sort of honestly, yeah, he is being kept alive by machines. And oftentimes when people say, I never want to be kept alive by my machines, what they mean is if I ever get in a situation where I'm not going to wake up, I wouldn't want that. I don't think we're there yet because this is sort of an acute situation. So then I would sort of probably at this point back the conversation a little, back up a little bit and say, Let, let's talk about what's happened to your dad. And I'd break the bad news that, that he does have a, what's basically a, a life-changing, life-threatening injury. And my goal whenever I'm breaking the bad news is to just keep it really simple for families to understand because there's a lot of emotion that's going to follow that bad news. And part of my job is to respond to that emotion, emotion, because if we don't respond to that emotion, then they're not going to be able to think about what does this mean and how do I then make decisions for my dad? Because now this family's become their surrogate decision makers. How do I then make decisions for him? So I think as he asked me that question, that's probably what I would do is sort of stop and break the bad news about prognosis and what I'm worried about right now. And then once I've done that, I would go back and start to address his questions about, is my dad on life support? Is that going to be forever? What does his future look like? Um, but I would try to break it up into little pieces and not do it all at once. And what I find is that um, at this point, as you said, what people are usually interested in is the long-term prognosis. You know, where is this going to end up in weeks or months or years? And because that's often hard to say, I, I often err on the side of just saying, let's give it a little while and maybe give kind of a trial of critical care and get a better idea for the, the course here. But are, are there cases where you feel like the prognosis is clear enough that you would, if not allow, even encourage some decision-making this early on? Yeah, I think, and I think that's what's tough about this case is this is an ICH of four in a 75-year-old gentleman who already has some cognitive problems and has made some statements about what he wouldn't want his quality of life to be like. And I'd have to explore that more, but I might limit care differently for him in a similar patient with an ICH of three who maybe had a, a better long-term prognosis. I always want to be mindful of not creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I love, I like taking care of patients with intracerebral hemorrhages particularly because I just like to keep that in mind because prognosis is hard for these patients. But I do think for some patients, depending on what the family told me, I may be less aggressive, even early, 
than for other patients. But I would not rush to that decision and it would take lots of communication with the family about what to expect and really honest discussions about how great prognosis can be for these patients. Do you have situations where based on the data available, you feel like the prognosis has a reasonable chance of being good and whoever's making decisions has kind of a really dire outlook and is interested in kind of focusing more on comfort very early like this and you want to discourage it? Oh, where where I as the doc might say, no, no, I don't want us to be so quick to go to go to comfort measures. Right. Yeah, I do. I think I try to go slow because I sometimes just don't know. There was a situation last week that I had where the patient's family was really clear that the patient did not want to be left with significant disability. But we were only sort of day two into a stroke. And I felt like we're just not there yet. I just don't know quite yet what the future is going to look like. So we talk a lot about um, scenario planning. So I sit down with the family and based on what I know on that day, and it's subject to change, right? Based on how aggressive we are or how the patient does, I think through a best case, worst case, most likely scenario and try to spell that out to patients and their families. And I think having that sort of drawn out to them or, or talked out to them almost in a what's the best we're going to get, the worst we're going to get, and where we're probably going to land can be really, really helpful. And then it's adjusted based on prognosis, right? So this gentleman's best case, worst case, most likely scenario is very, very different than another patient's best case, worst case, most likely scenario, even with the same ICH score sometimes. That's why I don't think you can always just use one prognostic score to, to think through that. Yeah, Jess, do you find, I feel like this is what I run into a lot, is that in situations like this, families feel this pressure to make a decision in the moment. Um, and I'm sort of like Brandon, I, I usually tell folks, there's very little we do in the ICU that I can't undo. Um, you know, so if you're on the fence, I would do everything. And we can stop later or peel back later. Um, I do think there are some kind of hard and fast lines, right? Like the trach peg conversation is one, uh, for example doing CPR, for example. Um, but for the most part, you know, like this guy, like you said, he's hemodynamically stable, he's intubated. Um, if the family's at all questioning, I don't think I would push to do anything uh, other than to continue care for him right now. Uh, and we can always stop that at some point and transition later. Yeah, I love that, Brian. I think that's a, a great way to do that is sort of you almost are setting out guideposts for, hey, we're going to be really aggressive right now. But then it's almost like it's a kind of a time-limited trial. We're going to try this for a few days, and then we're going to check in again. And I think working in, a, in an ICU where you have space to have those conversations with families or in the ED when the family gets there having those initial conversations to sort of lay out what the next few days are going to look like, have you found that to be helpful to be able to take that time at the beginning? Yeah, I think it's, it's nice to sort of, like you said, I like the, what you said, guideposts. I like that term. Um, and sort of say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do it for this long, and then we're going to revisit this. Um, and that's sort of uh, that's sort of the approach I take with really a lot of my decisions in critical care. Um, it's something that Dr. Hatton taught me very early on in my career was, you know, to tell a nurse, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and if it gets to this, we're going to do this, and in two hours, I'm going to come back. And, you know, and it's all laid out very nicely with a plan. And I think a plan um, always helps people. Yeah. And it's knowing what you're going to do if it goes the other way. 
Yeah, I guess I tend to find that um, for most kind of ICU admissions, a little bit of waiting is helpful, at least for family to come to, come to terms with things and for us to figure out where things are going. The exception maybe being for you know certain cases, especially in patients who are really kind of moribund, like toward the end stage of a chronic disease like dementia. And sometimes it's helpful to right off the bat figure out what you're doing with it if it's just clear that you know, not even the acute issue, but maybe the chronic situation is, um, you know, not curable. And maybe you can all agree to, to not pursue things too aggressively, as opposed to waiting three days when you're kind of half in it already. And I think that's why we've got to be really honest as, as um, the healthcare providers about what our limits of prognostication are, so that we don't get ourselves into, into trouble, because it's, it's really set and I want to be able to honor those limits in life. We don't even want to go down that pathway. And that's very, very different from a family who's saying, no, 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 please. We need some time. We want to think about this. There's got to be some people that will be okay, right? And I'm going to, I'm going to make decisions very differently in the setting of that family. So it's really goals and values driven and being honest about the limits to what we can predict from day one. All right. Well, let's so so let's say nurse surgery comes down and they agree with your estimation and they decide to place an EVD. Um, so they do that. It drains somewhat, but not uh, an impressive amount. Uh, and you go ahead and admit him to the ICU. So fast forward a little bit. We're three days later, um, and he's still relatively unchanged. His neurological exam is still fairly similar. It's, he's still a three T. Uh, he's not re- really requiring sedation. Uh, he does still have the cranial nerves intact that he did before. Um, so he's really just not a lot has changed with this gentleman. Uh, and the family says, so we talked in the emergency room the other night about kind of what to do uh, down the road. Is this the time that we want to start talking about those things? Yeah, I think this is a really good time. I think we're, we're three days in now. We've kind of done 72 hours of aggressive care. This is one of those great, I think with ICHs, that 72 hours of aggressive care is a great next guidepost to talk about what's our future gonna look like. And I think this is where setting up a family meeting, make sure everybody that needs to be involved in decision-making is there. And a lot of times that means we're calling folks on the phone because not everybody can be in town, but making sure patient's wife is there, his children are there. Again, it's revisiting that now that we're three days in, how are we gonna adjust our best case, worst case, and most likely scenario so that we can make decisions going forward? Okay, so you're you're getting the family together, and the son pulls you aside out in the hallway, and he says, um, "Doctor, my mom uh, is having a hard time with this decision. Uh, I think the rest of us kind of all agree what we should do, but she doesn't. Who makes the decision in this case?" Oh, that's a really great question. So I think technically, on paper, legally, you would say it's mom's decision, right? But what what I try to do in families, and I always want families to be supportive of each other. So one question I often ask is, how have you all made hard decisions in the past? And kind of learn about that from the from the kids. Because my goal in the family meeting is to is to really get everybody talking about what's most important to them. So what I would ask the son is, what do you think is, I'd actually have the mom in there too, probably knowing me, but I'd be like, what do you think your mom is struggling with? And once I learn what she's struggling with, it would be really working through those things. So 
for me, if this was kind of the, the family meeting I was running, I would, I, would, I would be directing most of my conversation towards the patient's wife. Because at the end of the day, she's sort of or ask her, you know, what's understanding so far? And listen to what she understands, not to correct anything that's wrong, but just to listen to her. And then I'd say, you know, what worries you the most? And ask questions about to sort of understand what does she worry about when she thinks about the future? What does she worry about when she thinks about his quality of life? I would make sure I'd ask her a question sort of, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about what the future might look like. And I think that at this point, I'd really be talking more about the worrisome prognosis for a patient with, a, with an ICH of four that has not improved despite really aggressive care and make sure that she understands that. And then one question that I sometimes will, will ask is I'll, I'll say, you know, if, if your husband could hear this news and hear sort of this prognosis, what would he say is, is most important to them and start mapping that out a little bit. And oftentimes when families start really thinking of surrogates and start really thinking about what would this person say, that helps hopeful for, right? Which for all of us is, man, we're hoping for a miracle. But man, you know, my husband, he was already kind of struggling and he said he didn't want to be left dependent on other people. He would never want to not be able to take care of himself. And oftentimes families are then able to do the hard work of making a decision and coming to an agreement as a family. Okay. So she tells you um, her biggest fear is that if we take him off life support, that he's going to suffer and struggle. Um, and she wants his, she doesn't want to see him live like that. I think that's why that report, that question is so important because she wasn't afraid that he was going to die and not be there anymore. She's afraid that he's going to struggle. And if we don't ask that really important question about what's worrying people the most, we can, we can go the wrong way, right? So I think that's when I would talk to her a little bit about, can I, can I tell her what to expect? I would ask, does she, does she want to know, like, how can we make sure that he's comfortable, what to expect during that time of life? And I, I try to be really honest with families and let them know that our goal is to always ensure people are comfortable no matter what. Jess, to what extent will you um, make your own recommendations at this sort of point? Are you purely eliciting, you know, what the family or patient are thinking on their own, or are you suggesting any directions on your your own behalf? Um, so my goal, and I think, you know, we all trained really hard to do the jobs that we do, and I think at the end of the day, our jobs are to use all of that training to make recommendations when the families want a recommendation. When I'm talking to families and I'm understanding, you know, the first thing I'm always asking is what's most important to you in this situation? And then I'm saying, you know, tell me more, what else, what else? And I'm using all of that information as data and I'm comparing it to what I know the prognosis is. So at the end of it, what I wanna do is I wanna, I wanna give them back all that data and align with them and say something like, it's an alignment statement. What I'm hearing you say is, your husband wouldn't wanna be dependent. He worries about us and wants to make sure we're well taken care of. He doesn't wanna suffer if time is short. And he wants to ensure that the doctors have done everything they can to try to get him through something. But if they come to a point where they realize they can't make him better, he may not wanna continue care. Is that right? And I'd get the family to sort of say yes or no. And then I might say, hearing that, 
is it okay if I make a recommendation about what to do next? And sometimes families say, no, 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 we don't, we don't need a recommendation. We're okay. We think we know what we need to do. And sometimes they'll say that, you know, yes, please make us a rec give us a recommendation. And then I would make a recommendation, but my recommendation is really driven by what we've mapped out and aligned with for them. Does that make sense? The difference? Yeah, no, that's good. I, um, I, I have found a lot of times I think we sometimes have, we sometimes go so far the other direction. We don't want to be paternalistic that we really just say, you know, I can't, I can't tell you what to do. You just have to make that decision for yourself. And a lot of times, like you said, we, we've trained very hard uh, to do what we do and we're experts at it. And most people are not. And I feel like sometimes families are like, but I want to know, I want you to tell me what I should do. Um, and so what I typically say is, I will, I will do within reason, whatever you want me to do. If I think it's harmful or unethical, that's one thing. But, uh, you know, even if I don't agree with it, even if it's not what I would do, I will do what you wanted to do. But if you're asking me what I would do, I'll tell you under the caveat that if you decide that you don't want to do it, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, it's just, I'm just answering your question not trying to advocate for a position one way or another, you know? I agree. And the, I think the challenge is um, giving your recommendation without it sounding like it's coming kind of out of the blue from you. So I, I like the way that you, you make it sort of seamless and you, you kind of elicit their thoughts and then you, you give a recommendation, but it, you make it clear that it's really just you interpreting their wishes and saying, well, if this is what you want, this is kind of how that's going to look medically. Um, so it's almost inevitable. This is just what that is. This is how that looks in reality. It's not, I'm not suggesting what to do. You suggested what to do. I'm just telling you how that's going to work. Yeah, I'm aligning sort of your goals and values with what we can do medically. And sometimes their goals and values, I can't do medically, right? I can't save someone's life sometimes, even with really, really aggressive care. And then I have to go back to step one and break bad news all over again. So oftentimes I think, you head down one path as you're getting people's goals and values and you realize, ooh, that's just not possible. Now I have more bad news that I have to go back and, and break. So it, it sometimes can be a cycle and sometimes it's not something that you're gonna come to easily. Um, that's when, you know, that's when calling in something like a palliative care team can be really helpful when you realize that there's a little bit of a disconnect between what's medically possible and what families are, are hoping for. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's just like you said, it's a different value system that might not be the same as mine, but if it's, um, Brian, I think you said, if it's, if it's reasonable and it's an option and something we can do, my job is not to say, no, I think that's a bad decision. <laughs> you know, if right, it's something right. that's reasonably available. And that's what I always do when people ask that question to me, like if this was your mom, what would you do is I, I sort of turn it back a little bit and I'll say, I'm going to answer that for you, but tell me about your mom. And that'll help me know how to answer that question. Cause really what that question is asking for is a recommendation, but what my mom would want who wants to like, you know, have comfort care now <laughs> as a healthy 65 year old, she would love to never, you know, have to see a doctor again in her life and just be comfortable for the rest of her life is very, very different from my dad who wants aggressive measures for everything. 
so if you know it, it's funny to me when people ask me that because I'm like oh you don't want to know what my, what my dad would want or what my mom would want it's very different than what your loved one might want there's a great um there's a great um teaching group called vital talk and they I I've in I guess my disclosure is I I teach for them it's a, it's a nonprofit. it was just kind of it's a training program that helped train me during my fellowships and they teach all over the the nation on how to have these hard conversations and this they sort of use these talking maps to talk to families because it's hard to do these are not easy conversations and it takes practice but they have a, a great talking map that they call remap that is using all of these skills it's it's reframing where we are right now and how a family understands an illness. It's responding to that emotion, mapping the future about what's important to the family, making sure you're hearing them correctly, aligning with them, and then making a plan going forward. And oftentimes that plan is a recommendation if that's what would help the family the most. But you have to do all the homework before you can make a recommendation. All right, everyone, we got so much good stuff from this episode that we went ahead and broke it up into two pieces. So we're going to call it quits here and tune in in two more weeks to hear the rest of this great scenario.